0: Hey everyone and welcome to this special soapbox edition of the Risky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray and for those of you who don't know, these soapbox editions of the show are wholly sponsored and that means everyone you hear in one of these editions paid to be here. Uh, And today we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic, uh, living off the land. The recent Vault Typhoon report out of Microsoft chronicled the adventures of a Chinese APT crew inside US critical infrastructure. Uh, But one of the most fascinating aspects of the Vault Typhoon campaign uh, was that the attackers almost exclusively used so-called living off the land techniques. And this means the attackers entered environments, and then used built-in Windows utilities and binaries to move around, uh, to move laterally and to get the job done. No traditional malware uh, was involved, but as you'll hear, there's like even a part of this discussion which is, what even is malware? Um, But yeah, in in some cases, the attackers, uh, uh, the Vault Typhoon attackers, were coming right in through the front door with highly privileged accounts. So the question becomes... What can you do about an attacker in your environment who has privilege and isn't using malware? My guests today are David Cottingham and Daniel Shell, the CEO and CTO of Airlock Digital. Uh, Airlock makes an allow listing and host hardening package that regular listeners would know that I'm a huge fan of. Uh, and as you'll hear in this interview, rolling out decent execution controls, a la, you know, good allow listing, can really help to slow down attackers who are living off the land. And in fact, a lot of airlock's customers have processes in place that let them continuously shut down uh, you know new lateral movement and escalation paths as they as they sort of become known about. Uh, but, There is absolutely no magic solution to this type of tradecraft, uh, even if you're using allow listing, which is what makes it such an interesting conversation. (laughs) So here's David Cottingham to kick off the discussion. Uh, He is the CEO of Airlock, and he says the Vault Typhoon Report is really a sign of the times. Uh, And I hope, yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I definitely did.
1: I think it's just a a sort of sign of the times in terms of these are the utilities that have been available to administrators for Many, many years, and now attackers are finally using the rich capability that's contained within, you know, run DLL, WMI, you know, and other processes that inherently exist in the Microsoft Windows ecosystem. Uh, And there is so much more here, right? Uh, You know, there's a lot of security research going on about how we can use, you know, inbuilt processes and undocumented features, and there's more raining out all the time. But this is pretty what I would say, uh, you know, run of the mill playbook nation state stuff, at least from what I've seen on other campaigns as well. Uh, They develop a new playbook, roll it out um, and stick with it until it gets burned or or heavily detected. And then they'll just tweak it a little bit using different utilities.
0: I think one of the things that makes this one novel, though, is that there's no malware anywhere. Like usually you see a combination of both, right? Like you see some sort of living off the land technique uh, used to move laterally. And then they always do something dumb like drop cobalt strike. And, you know, I mean, it's not dumb if it works and it works, but, you know, it tends to be more of a blended approach usually, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's code somewhere there. There were a few sort of custom or what they call FRP binaries here with the Vault Typhoon campaign. So there were a number of SHA-256 hashes that you could look at for, you know, indicators. Uh, and it's really tempting for attackers to use some sort of custom code. They can't okay. achieve really the the callback and that persistence easily inside environments without without at least something something sticking in there, right? You can't just expect you know WMI or or you know an inbuilt utility to be calling back to you and providing that rich capability without custom code.
0: I mean, you could do that in PowerShell, though, couldn't you?
1: You could, but then that's code that's executing somewhere that's, you Yeah, know... yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But that's... But I mean, okay, so that's that's a gray area. Is a PowerShell script, a malicious PowerShell script that gives you persistence, is that... You know, is that... Mal- what is malware? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean,
1: essentially, it's just code written in a different language to achieve the same objective, right? It's still malware, yeah. I think. And um, But that's a really script, good...
0: Script malware, I guess. You know, you'd yeah, it.
1: exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that over the years, we sort of put scripts and living off the land are sort of the same thing but it's interesting to make that and think about that separation
0: my god you guys really are the hipsters when you're actually turning that into a debate (laughs) 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 like uh, you know is using powershell living off the land Uh, controversial daniel uh you know you also would have been aware of of this campaign and the report that came out i mean what were your thoughts did it strike you as novel
2: Yeah. It's the same as what you're talking about before there being tradecraft. Like everything here that I'm looking at is, you know, run DLL, WMIC, command, PowerShell. um, And that would normally be, I guess, you know, it suggests that when they're using these sort of tradecraft, then that's becoming table stakes for the target order, you know, for the targets in this case.
0: And that's that's why I wanted to talk about it with you with you two is because it seems like, okay, you've been able to do this a long time. Pen testers at the sort of more elite end of the spectrum have been using these sort of techniques for years and years and years. But now we're seeing threat actors do it. So now it's rolling out to Chinese APT crews and it's a matter of time before it's the ransomware and data extortion people, right? So so as you say, this is going to be table stakes. Like, well, is it, it probably is already depending on yeah. who you are, but it's going to be for everyone yeah. soon
2: yeah for sure so i i think there what we really need to be working on is like okay well you know what can we take from these sort of these indicators the good thing about this sort of stuff like when you're at this when you're looking at defense at this level then you know there's only sort of limited amount of things that can be done because the actor is so restricted so you know you can start looking at the okay well you know they're running power Command. with command.exe and they got, you know, the exit bypass in there when the hidden window, like, you know, can we flag or can we prevent these PowerShell executions happening, you know, based on the context we know about them? And, you know, it might be weird from us from a, you know, a block listing, you know, talking about block listing or really rule sets here from a allow listing company. But, you know, the the, the thing there is, is that there's, there is sort of like a limit of things that you can do there. So it's not like you're blocking all the unknowns, like it's not like we're adding hashes of known new bad things. There's a limited set of bad behaviors that they kept when the attacker is this restricted. So it's about you know, understanding them and then providing rule sets or building rule sets. Um and, you know, as new um you know behaviors of this nature uh or TTPs are discovered.
0: That's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, it, it, it is in some ways similar to that EPP and, you know, even AV thinking, right, where there's a new attack, there's new tradecraft, and then you have to actually update the product to block it. I mean, I, I think the interesting thing, though, is, you know, you're actually blocking entire – when it comes to living off the land, you are actually blocking entire paths, lateral movement paths and whatever, with one configuration change, and it's enduring. And that's something that, where it might be different from the old AV way of just, like, blocking a specific threat.
2: Yeah, and it's not about blocking the the, the specific things, right? That's you can't just that's block what I mean. Pa- yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't just block PowerShell. You can't just block you know, WMIC. because you know. And and a lot, a lot of time, you know, in Twitter land, in Twitterland, people just go, "Yeah, no worries." But the reality is, there's so much of that's running in the background all the time. Mm. You know, SCCM and just Windows itself internally in scheduled tasks. So it's being able to differentiate what's your know, legitimate executions, um, and so it's really about you know understanding the context that these executions run in um where well, it's about times... being able
0: to specify the context in which they should run which is the whole yeah. purpose of allow listing right
2: yeah and, and and that's pretty much it so that's where like you know even even this week we were doing some work where customers saying hey we want to block um powershell when it's being run by the system account in certain ways so um but you know and then maybe with and also when there's certain um command line parameters in the powershell string and such like that so you know so definitely like you know higher end users of our product are Understanding or you're know, aware of this, and then you are know, conferring rule sets around this um so you know sometimes it's about knowing you know the well, approach- i mean what's the
0: what's the what's the threat they're trying to deal with there is that when an when an attacker has actually authenticated to the box and he's just trying to run powershell
2: um, well at, at that case it would be a case where the attacker is actually running in the in in the system process on system context i guess yeah, so the idea being that um, you know they already have like i guess for them it's more of a case of powershell should never run in this context yeah okay. that's the way that they're looking at it so so make sure we don't but i guess that would be a case you know a way we'd commonly see that would be a case where someone sort of come in they've put ps exec on the box they've escalated themselves to system so that's a very common thing because then you know they're not going to have any access problems about when they start trying to dump memory and everything else they want to do and your know, system is a bypass you're know, running as a system user is less likely in some cases to create detections for certain you know, um security programs. So what's happening in this situation with this customer is they go they're creating this rule with Airlock and an audit capability. So they go you know they, they turn on that rule and they go hey let's just see what's running in our environment because they right now they don't know yeah. Right? Okay. So they go let's see what runs the system in our environment. They get that logging information and if they don't see any ex- you know, exceptions for a week or two they might go a month maybe they, or patch. But they cycle. can
0: set an exception where it's like oh okay CrowdStrike is trying to run it so we should probably allow that but you know yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So this parent process is allowed to run it or this again like this user- anyway. Hey, no, I just realised
0: we've already got massively distracted. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> we, we've got massively distracted because we're talking about your approach to defeating uh, Living Off the Land. And, of course, that's obviously something we're going to talk about here. But one thing that we did want to mention... And I noticed it as well. So David mentioned this just before we got recording and I I twigged to this as well, which is that Microsoft's remediation advice here, well, not remediation advice, but their advice to people on how to protect yourself against this sort of thing uh, when it comes to the Vault Typhoon report seemed pretty generic, right? It was like, you know, how should you not get owned this way? Do good security, okay? You know, that, that seemed to be the vibe. I mean, that was also what you took away from that, wasn't it, David?
1: Yeah, I, I guess Microsoft's got that problem where you know they're putting new great security features in, and it's on the latest version of Windows. But the reality is, there's still Windows XP out there in the enterprise, right? Um, and mm. in order for these security mitigations to run through when you need them today, uh, it's not realistic to be able to go to the latest version of Windows 11, configure the group policy. And, and and do all of those type of things but i i think my biggest challenge uh with a lot of the microsoft uh advice in a lot of these cases is the complexity when it comes to group policy and also turning on and making sure that some of these uh features are actually working right um you know it's Either reading GitHub pages or, um, it, and it's just challenging to get your systems configured in the right way to to actually implement some of the advice that's here because it's it's really technically complex.
0: Mm. But I mean, this is this is Microsoft in a nutshell, right? Like until a few years ago, and it's something that I've brought up a million times on the on the show. Until a few years ago, if you wanted to wrap any sort of management around, unless you were E five and using a Casby product, if you wanted to wrap any sort of management about what sort of OAuth apps could connect to your users, you know, O three six five accounts. You had to do all of that through PowerShell, right? So, Microsoft Microsoft is just notorious for having really difficult to use uh, uh, protections. Yeah, and, and, and also verifiable, ver- right? Because yeah. quite often, you know, yeah, and that's it. Yeah. So you'll tick the box that. saying don't do this, and uh, you know you think it's you think it's all disabled, and then that thing still works. I remember I remember years ago when I still used Microsoft Word as a journalist to disable. Uh, I think it was it was or, or the auto grammar or something, right? Like you had to disable it in three different menus. You had to unclick it in three different places, right? To get that to work. And that, you know, it's just, that's Microsoft.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that confusion, one of the things here is actually a bit of advice for Vault Tafu, which is the attack surface reduction rules. I've had in, you know, my previous career doing security consulting, people would go, yeah, we configured it in group policy because it's there in the group policy template they turn it on. And then it's like, oh, well, we're using another endpoint solution. We're not using Microsoft... Defender for Endpoint so is ASR working or not and it's like to to today I think that you need Microsoft Defender for Endpoint for ASR to actually work and if you're using some other AV or that turns it off then ASR doesn't actually apply now that's but I can't be certain on that because there's nothing that I found definitive so
0: well I mean let's take a step back for a moment. And I just remember too, it wasn't the grammar checker. It was like the part of word that would turn quotes into smart quotes, which would then break (laughs) when you put it in a HTML-based like content management system Mm -hmm. for online publishing. So you had to disable that in like three different places. But look, one of the reasons the Microsoft advice here kind of sucks, right, is because this is a difficult problem to solve. Um, You know, this is not a trivial uh, issue. And in fact... Even in an allow-listed environment where people have set the rules up nicely, what you know, there's only so much you can do. Like in one of the cases that was talked about, I think by SecureWorks, someone like brute-forced the domain admin account from an internet-facing uh, uh, Citrix gateway, and that was how they gained their initial entry. Like from from the internet to domain admin. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks. Thanks, whoever like set that box up. You know, so there's no magic that's going to stop an attacker who lands with domain admin. But that said, you know, of everything that I've been thinking about, like there's two things that are going to help here. One of them is really good monitoring. And the other one is, yeah, definitely going to be allow listing because when an attacker starts wanting to move around, even if they're authenticated with a lot of privilege, they're still going to run commands. They're still going to hit executables that in an, environment with your stuff in it is going to actually raise flags right because there will yeah. be you know this admin tried to run this command uh, and it's and it's and it's blocked
1: yeah and I think look to give Microsoft a little bit of a break as well as they got the task of solving these problems and, and providing security here yeah. for everyone without yeah. breaking anything. You know, and that is a challenge at, at global scale. So I really appreciate that. I, I think uh, you know Microsoft's uh, security uh, approach on the, going forward is is really about sort of isolation and sandboxing. It seems to be pretty heavy. You know, make sure that LSAS is is a, protect, a fully protected process, and you can't get into it. It's about building out those different building blocks of the operating system and making sure they're secure. I guess I'm interested to see going forward. When uh, there and if this even happens, when there's attention turned to these components that are used to be, you know, low bins, uh, to say that okay, you need to be, you know, you, you can only use WMI if you're, you know, in this particular you know, level of privilege or or starting to cut off some of the functionality of those binaries. A lot of our time is spent doing research into how are these binaries used? Like we know what they're meant to be used for, right? But how are they used and what what uh, parts of the uh, binary or what aspects can we sort of close off without causing a production impact for customers? So then we can write yeah. a standard rule and ship it and, and um, you know, look at, uh, okay, this will actually cut off uh, reduce your risk from that particular login
0: yeah i mean i mean a lot of it as I, as I as i alluded to right like a lot of it um would i mean even in this case right like their standard way of of gaining access to a target was to pop shell with a zero day uh in fortinet and then try to run ntds util uh via wmi and a domain controller now i spoke to you guys when all of this was happening and you know, it turns out, like, you wouldn't have been able to do much in that situation under a default rule. You can't just blanket block some of these things, like we've been saying. Like, NTDS util, that's something that's going to need to run. You can't just stop it, right?
2: The the question is, like, does is NTDSUTIL util needed or automatically used? Like, it's the same approach as before, right? The answer for this whole stuff is you don't know, right? So my value is find out how to do it find out how it runs does it run normally if not okay how can we control it because obviously it's something that attackers do so the example there you know, in this case you know to be on the technical is you know w they call wic on a machine with creds they then call command.exe which then you know create some folders and does ntdsutil. but you know you have to think about how that execution context happens now most organizations can't just say hey i'm just going to block ntdsutil." when the grandparent processes WMIC. Probably, off off the top of my head, that sounds like a pretty good rule to me. But if you weren't sure on that, like, you know, the benefit of having an allow-listing approach, um, when you're sort of thinking about more about the control aspect of it, is the idea of being able to say, okay, well, let's find out how we run this. How often does this run in my environment? How does it run? Understand that context, and then restrict it so it only runs within that context. So, you know, by having that visibility, you're then able to then sort of apply that to say, okay, well, you know, it turns out in our environment, um, dumb, you know, yes, I mean this NTV. is this is just
0: the, the, the process that you described for uh this customer who wanted to look at how PowerShell was used in a system context, right? So is that becoming just how customers do it? They just create a rule, roll it out in audit mode, and then wait and see what comes back to see whether or not it's something they can lock down and how tightly?
2: Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. For the, yeah. for the customers that are really on the ball, that's where they're looking at. It's not so like, you know, if you think back a few years ago, you'd be like, oh, what's the latest indicators? Oh, there's Shars from this campaign. You know, I've, I've got this new threat report. I've got these yeah. new Shars 256 yeah, and eighty yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's block them. Yeah. Um, You know, now people are like, okay, I need to look at the behavior, and I need to make you know determine. I don't, I don't want people. I don't want different attackers or other tradecraft groups. We're going to use this the second it's published, to you know make sure we block that as a type, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the good thing is, if they will allow this thing, is there's limited methods or versions of this, right? yeah there's not an unlimited amount of hashes there's only a, there's a limited amount of behaviors so instead of blocking
0: individual threats you're blocking TGPs, individual really. like right. lateral yeah. moves right which yeah it makes a lot of sense david you wanted to chip in
1: yeah it's gonna say one thing that we we're gonna really focus on over the next 12 months internally is, is providing more of these rule sets and figuring out what's the practical approach in amongst all of this you know um and of course, a lot of attack reports like Vault Typhoon really inform that, you know, and because they're always little subtle variations on, on you know a wider playbook, but it all comes down to a lot of these new attacks. You know, WMI, yeah. PowerShell, CLI in some yeah, regard, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then moving from there to other weird and wonderful binaries.
0: Did you actually give customers mitigation advice on this? Did you say you want to spin up this rule and, you know, actually audit it and, and, and see, or, did, or are they just like grown-ups who can handle this themselves?
1: No, so we, we hadn't had, uh, didn't do any reach out on, on this one specifically. Uh, there were some recently about, um, you know, a lot of stolen drivers. Um, I believe it was from the MSI um, hack.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where, we covered that. Yeah, yeah.
1: there were there are customers that reached out, being like, "Hey, how do I block this?" And then also some of the um, uh, you know resulting activity that we've seen, uh, you know, from that particular campaign. And then we uh, we pushed out some advice on that one. Yeah, yeah. what was
0: the advice? Good, good. Don't use those drivers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First of
1: all, it was it was allow listing will block this by default because they need to. Yeah. Uh, there was an executable involved in that one, and also so a it was a heads up
0: that some of your drivers might stop working, basically.
1: Yeah, correct. So it was block yeah. block the exe by default, and then it was also banned the certificate thumbprint of the particular stolen driver that was used to sign the driver. So then, even if that certificate was used to sign any other bit of code, then it wouldn't actually run, and you're proactively preventing it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: And and just and just closing closing the circle before as well. Like the other thing in this full typhoon campaign was you know the traditional LSAS mini dump um, to you know drop creds. Um, you know and Microsoft's um, you know advice on that is you you turn on protected process light and you know easier said than done. Or you know yes it's default on brand new Windows Enterprise Eleven machines, but what about your Windows servers or you know two thousand and twelve domain controllers and stuff that are floating around? Um, and you know what attackers are then doing is if if, if there is but even if they sorry if the attackers even get to that protected parent process then what they're going to do is like you know according to you know to current twitter tradecraft and we have seen it once or twice is then they will all go towards the bring your own vulnerable driver so you can unprotect the process and then dump it yeah um but that and that's where the traditional allow listing comes in well that's right? right i was going to say like doing
0: that where you are is hard well it's yeah. basically impossible so <laughs> yeah
2: yeah, so, so it's like this circle, right, where you, where you restrict them down to really limited tradecraft, and then you know other other opportunities, hardening or similar, but then from, makes them go back to binaries, and then binaries are easy for us.
0: Yeah, I Should mean, try. when all this kicked up, Adam and I were talking about this and how airlock might treat various bits of it. It was his feeling, and he was right, that the NTDS util stuff like would not be blocked out of the box by airlock because it would cause too much drama. And, you know, but I, I made the point, okay, say you dump the entire active directory in an environment where airlock is, then what? You know, like, how are you going to then move around without actually hitting a blocked execution and raising an alert? I
1: I mean, I've I've sort of seen a bit of this before, uh, which is, like, the attacker just has to assume a standard user and do the things that you have to allow standard users to do. They will start RDPing around the place. Mm. You know, and they will start uh, just copying and pasting things through RDP. uh, You know, and
0: (laughs) that's not a a fast way to exfil like ninety gig though.
1: No, it's not. But it forces them to tiptoe right, and also the the reason uh, when they start using those techniques, then uh, people generally figure it out because they're like, "Hang on, I didn't log on at this time, which is my last log on." Like, it starts to leave a lot of other footprints. That a, a since it's attributable to a person, that people under start to understand that behavior. And generally, in organizations, they have an admin team where all the admins will know everyone, and they'll be able to start to pick up on those things.
0: Yeah, and I'd imagine too that like is that RDP just into what servers, servers. that are normally RDPed into, or yeah,
1: and also things like Exchange servers, and you know, and, and then it really comes down to you know uh, how are Having you designing it, your network yeah. to stop that sort of continued lateral Well, movement. not even to
0: stop it. I mean, you know, because we often talk about how, you know, airlocks are preventative control and it's feel, felt like people gave up on them for a long time. But it really does feel like we're actually finding a more of a balance these days between uh, prevention and detection, right? And And I think people who are really rabid detection is everything types are realising that decent preventative controls – actually just give you mean that the signal to noise that you're detecting on is just so much better
1: yeah exactly you only want them to trip over something it's an arms race as always and, and if you can even slow the attacker down from the initial land and expand once they get into an environment then you've got less to clean up as well so
0: all right so let me ask you this right this is the first campaign that's really made big waves for being you know uh, a living off the land, you know, apt crew, blah 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 blah, right? Like it's 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 the first sort of contemporary one that I can think of that's been you know widely discussed. So where does it go from here? Like, what are the next big trends going to be in living off the land, trade craft?
2: Yeah, it's just it's just going to be more of the what we what we've seen in the vault Typhoon. yeah, it's going to be more of like what can we do without bringing in our own tooling, and the fact that you're coming in through a vulnerability. That's an expected thing for Fortinet, Citrix, whoever it's going to be, come into the network. Um, then how do I jump into another box? Often from those appliances, when they're compromised, they have some sort of Active Directory creds in the appliance, <laughs> so they—that's their starting point. Yeah. And then from there, it's the like, how do we get, how do how do we move forward about using custom?
0: Yeah, domain joined Fortinet is just like the biggest own goal on the internet at the moment. But yeah, yeah
2: that's pretty, pretty pretty much it. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I I think one thing that I would sort of like to see as well is you know there's a lot of talk and and you know potential legislation looming about sort of software bill of materials for vendors, right? You know, tell us what's mm. in your software. And but what about and I don't know this is a big thing. It it's like software bill of behaviors almost, right?
0: Yeah, well, you know, ExtraHop, right? We're a sponsor, and a few of their team had that idea. And they spoke about it on the show, and it actually got traction. They had calls from all sorts of interesting people, and we spoke about it a few times because, you know, particularly for the – I mean, look, at the network level – that makes a lot of sense, right? Like, here are this software's update service, for example, right? And uh, you know, this is what that communication looks like. But I see where you're going with this, which is what process, what Windows processes is this thing going to invoke? What DLLs is it going to rely on? Yeah. And I can see you grinning and smiling and thinking, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, <laughs> but it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I often think, I often think, actually, a bill of behaviors. Is more immediately useful than a bill of materials.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, Because it's, Mm. you know, from this, again, Vault Typhoon, this write up is talking about the things that really the process shouldn't do. Well, I guess that's the thing. Should it? But they're all Windows
0: Windows processes in this case. Exactly.
1: And they could be used to do so much type of stuff. But we could start from a place of, you really shouldn't be able to do these things. Like, you shouldn't. Mm. And and again, legacy, and it's a really tough challenge. But I think if we, we, you know, normalizing what's in the software, you know, if we can get some information about how it behaves, it would help.
0: But I think I think that's just going to evolve because of sandboxing more and more in OSs, right? So in the future, I can imagine that browsers are going to be, I mean, you know, browsers are going to be pretty tightly controlled in how they interact with the system. They already are, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I just think as that gets pasted out to every single other type of app, I just think we're going to see more and more of that.
1: Yeah, and it's a big push, you know, by Microsoft to go towards the, you know, the Windows App Store where things naturally, when they're downloaded and run, they're all attested to and signed, but they're also all in an isolated, you know, sandbox, low-integrity state, uh, mm-hmm. and they're only elevated when they need to do certain things.
0: But, I mean, again, that doesn't help us here, does it? Because no. of the for-to-fail gateway, and it's, you know, gigantic service account, which just, you know... And here we are and here we all are talking exactly. about it. That's like, why it's a tough problem, and that's why I wanted to talk to you guys. Yeah,
1: about and it. we we sort of uh, done talk internally about, you know, okay, what's the competitive landscape with allow listing? Like, you know, in zero trust is being plastered on, you know, every company's security booth everywhere. Um, you know, and there's there's a few companies that are talking about, well, if we can secure the perimeter again, then you know, it's and and I've sort of always come back to Allow listing will always be relevant as long as there are endpoints run code.
0: Yeah, like well, I mean, you you know, endpoint integrity is really important to the, you know, uh, to the zero trust model. I mean, it's a zero trust networks paradigm, not a zero trust endpoints paradigm. You know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> The, the part that's interesting on... Well, even Microsoft, right? They're, they're, they're putting in sandboxing. Like, they've just announced or, you know, coming in Windows 11 H2, the ability to... I think it's in beta at the moment to sort of sandbox or containerize your Windows 32 applications. And, you know, and they're really hoping that developers will write definitions to... You know, that, Allowed behaviors. That's what they're doing, right? So they're they're pushing on that. But to be honest, like you know, I I haven't looked into it yet. But for me, it's all like, can we create some of these definitions to help with that or Mm. enforce them? (laughs) Maybe because again, I wouldn't know how to configure them. I wouldn't know how to set them up you know as an IT administrator and it just falls back into the standard thing was okay well that's great that's that's the lead bleeding one percent of our endpoints that have that capability
0: yeah I mean you could derive rules from that but I mean I guess a lot of that's going to move into the OS though if it's if it's an enforced sandbox where they have to actually supply a manifest presumably the OS will be enforcing that as well
2: yeah yeah but how it does that will be the interesting
0: part
1: yeah, yeah and you need to take you need to take the stick approach to change developer behavior for the ecosystem like and you think back to why everyone hated Windows Vista which was user account control was introduced, yeah. right? And everyone before that was just writing software assuming that they had administrative access to everything. And Vista changed that and then everyone you know it was backed off a little bit in windows 7 but the real thing that made windows 7 more palatable was the majority of the software ecosystem had already adapted to running with lower privileges so and this is going to be the same with sandbox
0: i thought vista was hard done by actually i i, I did not i thought for its time vista was pretty oh, good, i agree but, Completely. Know, i'm like one of the 10 people in the world who seems to think that yeah, yeah, yeah i agree was, was,
2: yeah it was a, it there was a device compatibility nightmare yeah, yeah just because they had yeah. just time yeah that's it the, the internals
1: would change completely so
0: yeah I mean it's basically the. I mean it is more or less the basis of Windows now yep. right is, is Vista so yeah, yeah. alright guys let's wrap it up there uh, always great to chat to you both uh, David, Daniel really interesting to get your perspective on that uh, pleasure to chat to you both
2: thanks Patrick cheers Patrick
0: that was Daniel Shell and David Cottingham from Airlock Digital there. Big thanks to them for that. And you can find them at airlockdigital.com and I recommend you check out their stuff. But that is it from me today. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I'll be back soon. Thanks for your company.